0: All right, let's pray. Avinu makenu, our Father, our King, we come to you in the name of Yeshua, thanking you that you have not left us as orphans, but you've left us with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to guide us, to teach us, to bring all things to remembrance so that we may understand that you will direct us in our path, the way we are to go and the way we are to live, That we're not alone in this, but that you, by your Holy Spirit, teach us and guide us. In Yeshua's name, amen. We've been working through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse by verse, and a couple of things I want to remind you of. Why was the book of Hebrews written? And I said I was going to try to tell you this every time, so if you get anything, you will get this. And the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers in Yeshua. Who were going through great persecution for their faith in Yeshua. And they were being kicked out of their synagogues and out of their communities. And because of those things coming upon them, they were puzzled because they had received Messiah as the Messiah, as the one who would bring the kingdom of God. And so they were expecting there to be peace and reign. And instead, They had persecution, even from their own families. And so just like John the Baptist, who uh, knew he was sent to proclaim the coming of the king, preparing the way of the Lord, but then when he found himself in prison, knowing that bad things could happen to him, People didn't go generally go into Roman prisons and expect good things. You didn't get your three square meals a day and legal rights and all that. You had no rights when you got locked up in a dungeon in Rome. And he began to question the call that he had. He began to question if Yeshua is the one. And he received the revelation. That, who, that he would see whoever the Spirit come on. This is the one that baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So he knew it. He's the one that says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But now that he's in a dungeon, he's going, I'm not sure anymore. I'm, not, I'm confused. And he sent some of his own disciples to go find Yeshua and ask him, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? Of course, at that time, Yeshua did some miracles, cast out some demons, healed some people, and then turned to them and said, go tell John what you have seen. Go tell him that the blind are receiving their sight, that the the poor are having the good news preached to them, and and blessed is he who's not offended because of me. And they do that. Well, that's what was happening to the Jewish believers that the book of Hebrews is written to. Things weren't going well following after Yeshua. And some of you have been there. You came, you grabbed Yeshua, and then bad things begin to happen. You begin to wonder, is there a God? Does he really exist? Is Yeshua really the Messiah? And that's what was happening to the people in the book of Hebrews. So the writer is writing them to encourage them, to exhort them, and even to rebuke them, to remind them that Yeshua is of a greater weight of glory of anything and anyone that God has spoken through in the past. And so in the first four chapters, you see him say, well, you know, in times past, God has spoken through angels. He has spoken through prophets. He's spoken through Moses. He has the priesthood. But now there comes one who is of a greater weight of glory than all of them, I mean, if you listen to the prophets, how much more should you listen to God's son? If you listen to the angels, how much more should you listen to the one that it says, let all the angels of God worship him? How much more should you listen to him? Moses, the great lawgiver who gave the Torah, who who was able to establish the law of God, was only a servant in the house of God. Why, Yeshua is an heir of the house. It's his house. How much more should you listen to him? Or the priesthood, the priests who had to offer up sacrifices for themselves because of their own sins, yes. and who died off, so there were always new priests coming. And there, here comes a priest of the order of melchizedek Melchizedek, who is, his priesthood is forever, is an eternal one, is a heavenly one that is forever and ever and ever, who is righteous and perfect in every way, and instead of using the blood of bulls and goats, takes his own righteous blood in to make atonement once for all, how much more should you listen to him? Then he goes in and says, look, the righteous of God throughout history when people choose to live holy and righteous, may find that they'll have to suffer persecution. So don't be surprised that when you choose to live for God and really follow after him and don't fit into the world system, that the world won't be happy about that. And they'll persecute you. And they'll say bad things about you. And some will want to kill you. And so he exhorts them to not allow unbelief to destroy the work of God. And he goes back and he reminds them, look, there were a bunch of people who came out of Egypt with the mighty hand of God. The sea was opened up. They were given manna from heaven, water from rocks, the Torah from Mount Sinai. And yet, because of their unbelief, They wandered around for 40 years until they died off and did not inherit the promise. So the writer says, don't you have the same heart of unbelief? Have a heart of faith, believing, trusting the Lord, even if you're going through difficult times because of the gospel. In fact, the interesting thing, when the apostles were put into prison. They were all locked up and then they were beaten and they were let go. They didn't speed dial their attorney to bring a lawsuit. They didn't contact NBC and everything said there's been a great injustice here. We'd like you to come in and and and, and hear our story. No, you know what they did? They came out and said, Thank you, Father. That we were counted worthy enough to suffer for your name's sake. For the name of Yeshua. They found it an honor that they could share in the Messiah's sufferings. We don't generally think like that today. Especially if you're raised in America where we're used to getting our attorneys to sue for this and sue for that. And we're going to get back at you. And yet, we see that the disciples didn't go that way when they were being mistreated because of the message of Yeshua. See, that's a challenge. So anyway, that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's written to encourage Jewish believers. But even if you're not Jewish, since the things that are being spoken come from the Ruach HaKodesh, they're true and they're right. And even if you're not Jewish, it's there to encourage you as well. So whether you're Jew or Gentile in here today, The words spoken here are to encourage you, are to lift you up. Now we got into the chapter six, and we went through the whole chapter six, and then we backed up, and we took the first part of chapter six, where we started talking about the foundations. Let me read the first part of chapter six. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Messiah, let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. So, so the exhortation is that, to, that we are to be able to move on from these elementary teachings, foundations. Now, in saying that, he, he's not talking about the intellectual thing. He's not saying... You know, you guys don't intellectually understand this, so we're going to teach you till you get it. You get your A plus from the study, and now you can go on with life. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for those who ought to be teachers by now because they have learned to exercise the things of the kingdom of God in reality, that they're living it out. It's not just the intellectual understanding, but it's the experiential walking out of the things of God. That's what it means when you walk in faith. You don't just have it in your mind, but you walk out what God says to do. And that's what he's exhorting. So that's why he says, we will move on to the, from this if God allows it. Because God won't pass you to the next grade if you haven't completed and, and incorporated into your life what you should have learned. He's like not, not not Back to the drawing board. You know, my my sons who love basketball could relate to this because, you know, if you don't get the skill right, no, 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 go do it again. Well, I got everything else. No, you got to get this down. Yeah, but I've been doing it a long time, but you still haven't incorporated it into your life. When you get it incorporated, when it's a part of you, when you are walking in it without even thinking about it, now you're ready to move on. But even moving on doesn't mean forgetting what you've learned because it's a foundation. What is the purpose of a foundation? Well, to build upon. That's why you have a foundation, because you're going to build something on it. Yeshua said that if you built your house on sand, it would be like a person who hears the word of God but doesn't do it. It says they build their house upon the sand. But the person who hears God's word and walks it out, they're building their house upon the rock. And it then says, the storms will come. Whether you built your house on the rock or whether you built your house on the sand, it will be tested. The storms will come. But if it's on the rock, you're safe inside, secure, because it's on the rock it won't be scared of the storms. The winds may blow, the clouds may come through, the rain may pour down, but your house will stand because it's built on a strong foundation. But for those who don't have that strong foundation, even though they built something, but they built it on sand, when the winds come, when the rains come, great will be the fall of that house. It will collapse, no matter how beautiful the edifice looks. If it's not on a strong foundation, it will not stand the test. So these foundation teachings are not something that you put, oh, done that, done that, done that, now let me forget them and move on to something else. No, you incorporate it into the bigger things. Well, It's almost like learning your ABCs. You know, if you were English speaking starting off from the beginning, you learn your ABCs you would start off learning your letters, learning to sing your ABCs and learning what those letters are. Now, after a good 20, 30 years, I hope that that's not where you still are. But I hope that you haven't forgotten the ABCs because now you use those ABCs to make words and use those words to make sentences and those sentences to make paragraphs and those paragraphs to write whole volumes of books and novels and ideas and concepts and yet you still have the ABCs incorporated into these huge concepts and so they have a strong foundation. And so that's what it is with these six foundations we're gonna talk about. It's not a matter of you just having the knowledge of it but that you incorporate it into your life and you're walking out. And we've covered two already. The first one was repentance from dead works. And very quickly, uh, summarizing those first foundations of repentance, repentance means to change your mind, change your heart, change your direction. In Hebrew, we use the word teshuva, which means to return to God you were walking with God, holding his hands. Something caught your attention. You jerked your hand loose, and you ran out to go chase after certain something else. And God is standing there saying, come back here now. You know, I see, even in this congregation, I'm not going to rat you out. I see some, some parents running after their children. My wife never ran after our children. She'll tell you. she tell them, don't you run from me. If you run from me, it'll be the last time you run from anything. Right, dear? My wife's here, by the way. And she was stern and strong. And she would sit there and say, come here. And they ran off. She didn't run after them. Come here. And they would come back. They could she, In fact, I got to tell this, and I know I'm going to get in trouble for this. Even after they got older, and I've never been able to do this. My sons would be out on a basketball court playing basketball. All these people all around. I would walk in. And I'll be trying to get their attention. I'm here. Hey. And they just keep doing what they're doing. Sandra would walk in. Stand there. Raise one hand up without saying a word. They would stop. Yes, Joshua. They would stop what they were doing. They'd be in mid-shooting. Put the ball down. Yes, mom. (laughs) They walk right over without one word. I don't know how she poured that off. But that's what she does. Well, that's what teshuva is all about. It's returning to the source. And the source, in our case, is God. That when you wandered away to something else, you need to return teshuva to God and do the things you were doing before. That's what repentance is, turning back to God. And it's from dead works. I like to view there are three levels of dead works. The first one, they all have to do with breaking the commandments of God. But the first one, I use the theological term, the biggies. Yes, that's a theological term, the biggies. Those are the ones that everybody tends to agree with. You know, oh, adultery and murder and and thievery and and, um, drunkenness. And oh, yes, those are bad things. You shouldn't do those. People are quick. Homosexuality, ooh, people are quick to name those. But what about the next level? Envy, strife. Jealousy. Lashon hara, the evil tongue speaking evil of other people. Covetousness. What about those things? Those things some people call white lies. You can, you can twist your tax thing a little bit. You, can, you know, accelerate the amount that you gave, maybe so you get a little bit more back. and. Taking those pens and pencil, pencils from work when you didn't have permission because your kid needs pens and pencils for their program at school. Oh, nobody would miss a few paper clips from work. They got tons of them. And then the next level, and this is the hardest one of all. This is when the outward work looks good, but the inward heart is evil. Yeshua says that some people are like whitewashed sepulchers. You ever been in a cemetery They have these beautiful, beautiful stone buildings? And I mean, really, some people like to go through just to look at the artwork, the artistry of some of these big mausoleums. It's just it's like, oh, they're beautiful, and they're pretty, but they're full of dead man's bones. There's no life in them. And some people's works, their works on the outside look great and good and wonderful, but God knows the heart. And it's a stench in his nostrils. And so sometimes those are hard to tell. Because on the outward side, on the external, it looks good. Like that was a good work. Some people preach the gospel only to make money. It's not a new thing. Paul mentions it. People say, oh, people, some people view preaching the gospel as a way to, to make money, and some did it in order to add to his chains. They didn't have a pure heart in preaching the good news. They just, hey, this is a moneymaker here, man. Let's work this thing. Now, Paul's attitude about that was as long as the gospel is preached. As long as people are getting saved. He said, you know, I'll endure that because at the end, God will separate the sheep and the goat. God will separate, the ta- take the tares and the, the good grain. He will be able to separate the wheat and the tares. He, he's the ultimate judge. So don't get too weirded out because you know somebody is taking advantage. They're lying, they're cheating with the gospel of God. Don't worry, God will deal with that. If anything, pray that God will have mercy on them and that they will come to truth and repent. So that's repentance from dead works. And then we talked about faith towards God, which is crucial for us. And as I said, the, 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 the word faith, a better way of looking at faith is the word trust. In Hebrew, we use the word umanah, for, for, for faith, that's the word that's used, and it means trust. I like that better than faith, though they mean somewhat the same, but the emphasis is a little different. You know, in English, when you think about faith, you try to think a lot about yourself, about your faith, and what you believe, and you kind of reduce it to your belief, your intellectual ability to believe the things of the God in this kingdom. While the word trust puts all the emphasis on God. It is your evaluation of God and his character and his ability and his nature. Do you trust him? See, it's a different. I say, do you have faith in him? It's almost like you, but do you trust him? Which is what the real meaning even of the Greek word that's used for for faith. It's it's the same idea. It's just we kind of sometimes reduce it to intellectual ability. But intellectual ability and faith can be so far apart. In fact, the scripture says the demons believe and they tremble in fear because they don't have faith. But they understand the issue is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and they also know that a certain judgment is waiting on them. Yeah. So I gave you some basic principles, what I call the ingredients of faith, that if they're there or if one of them's missing, you can have faith, but they all have to be there. The first one I talked about was that you had to have a promise. God has to promise. That promise doesn't always have to be direct. It could be uh, based on his nature and character, of something he said in general that he would do, that he loves you, that he will take care of you. He may not have told you the particular thing there, but you understand that he loves you and he cares about you, so you have a promise on those things. But you do need a promise, after you have that promise, because you can't go praying just whatever you want to pray, right? This book in James says that, that some people believe and they ask, but they pray amiss and they don't get anything from God because they're praying to consume it in their own desires, Just because you can claim something and believe something and stand your ground and say, I claim this, if it doesn't align with the purpose and the will of God, you can claim till the cows come home. The reality is it won't come to pass. God won't even hear you. He's saying, talk to the hand. I'm not listening to you. You got to be aligned up with his purpose and his will. That's why you need a promise. After you get the promise, you got to wrestle with whether or not you believe that he is capable of doing it. We read about how Abraham wrestled with the whole idea of offering up his son because, and it says he had to wrestle with that. He had to consider that having a child and I'm past the age, Sarah's past the age, how in the world is God going to fulfill this promise being that I'm too old? And my wife's too old. We're past the childbearing time. What, what are we going to do? And he wrestled with that weakness of the flesh until he believed that God was able to perform what he said he would do. Hallelujah. He came to complete. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he is able. And that's why he was willing to offer him up, because he believed that God could raise him from the dead. Hallelujah. Because, see, you could, you could have a promise... But if you don't think God is capable of doing something or anybody's capable of doing something, even though they promise you and you look at them like, I I know you have good intentions. I know you mean well in what you say, but you don't have the ability to perform that which you have promised me. So I've come up with plan B and plan C and plan D. I called a bunch of other people and I've come up with all these other things and I've created another way just, you know, because I just don't quite think you're going to pull it off. Or maybe you do believe he's capable. Maybe you're one of those, yes, God is all-powerful. God can do anything. There's nothing that God can't do. He is powerful. But when it comes to me, I just don't know if he will keep his word. If you don't believe that God is faithful, and in the book of Hebrews, it uses Sarah as the case for that. It says that she judged. It's a fascinating passage in Hebrews 11. He says, she judged God faithful who had promised. So that shakes us, makes us shake. Judging God? Oh, stop being so religious. You judge God all the time. We judge each other all the time. We're always having an evaluation of what we think about a person. So when you come to God in prayer, you're judging him. You're either judging him and say, yes, he can do what he says he will do, and he's faithful to do what he says he's going to do, and so I'm going to go to his throne of grace, believing it's there because he promised it. Or you're going to look at your own circumstances and make that higher than what God says and believe your circumstances and say, God, I know you mean well, but hey, you don't know my situation. You don't know the family I've come out of. You don't know the things we've done. Yeah, you can save all those other people, but you know, I'm the worst of the worst. I'm not not sure you can pull it off of me, or I'm not sure if you'll be faithful to that. So you need that promise. You need to have confidence that God is capable of doing what he says. And you need to know for sure that he is faithful. When he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. He's not going to back out of it, out of a technicality, and say, well, you know, I know I said that, but I was a little excited at the moment, and I really didn't mean it. God is not a man that he should lie. His yes is yes, and his no is no. And so we can trust him fully. So, you have to have those things. And then also, you need to come and have a sense of who He is. The scripture says in Hebrews 11 that you must believe that God, that He is. And he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You got to come to God knowing that he will hear your cry and that he will meet your need and he will reward you if you diligently seek him. If you're not sure about that, it is hard to exercise faith in anyone or even in God if on any level you're not sure that he is a rewarder. It's important that you step out on his promise. Sometimes we don't step out, and as soon as we grow up and learn to stop being religiously prideful, we will grow in the Lord when we learn to be honest with him and say, well, God, like that one guy with the withered hand, he says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. That guy was honest. He didn't try to put on a pretense. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm all right, Lord. I got a withered arm, but I believe you. I'm trusting you, God, as he's looking at everybody. I have no doubts, and he's testifying for himself and not to the glory of God. But he was honest. He's said, look, I believe, but I'm, I'm, I need some help here. I know deep down inside I'm struggling. I mean, I've had this withered hand for a long time. It's been with me for a long time. And you saying you're going to heal it in a second? I have learned to work with this thing. I have learned to, 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 to get special shirts made just for this withered hand. I've learned to eat with the other hand. I've learned to live with this thing. And now you're saying you're going to bring healing. I, I believe you can do it, but help me, Lord, in the area of unbelief. This is hard for me to fully receive in my spirit. Help me. Some of us need to have that kind of conversation with God. For some of you, it's just overcoming a certain type of sin. You got to come clean and say, Lord, I believe you, but help me. I got a little bit of doubt here. Something happened to me today. I was out and something said to me, or I'm remembering some bad things said to me from my childhood. My, my parents said some mean things. My uncle said a mean thing. Somebody said some bad things, said, I will never amount to anything. And that's, that's whispering in my ear when you say that I'm your son and you're saying that, that you have translated me from darkness, king of light, but I got this other voice here. Lord, help me to shut that other voice down and hear your word so that I will step out in faith and begin to do the things that you said that I'm supposed to do. Yes. Scripture says faith without works is dead. If you say that, you know, I get a big fight. Well, faith versus works, faith versus works. We need to understand that when you really have faith, that the grace of God, because the Scripture says, by grace are you saved through faith, God's grace is a merited favor that comes into your life and begins to work in you the thing that God has called you to do. That whatever that, and I, I tell people, why don't you take time and start making a list of the unmerited favor of God? Most people got the one thing on their list. Most people. I've had to counsel people on this too. But most people have the list Jesus died for my sins and I'm forgiven. So they got that on their list. They're walking around, you pull out the sheet, they got that one on their list. I'm forgiven. Hallelujah. why are you living in all that sin? I'm forgiven. But why are you still living in all that sin? But I'm forgiven. You need to add some other things to that list because God's unmerited favor is not simply you are forgiven. God's unmerited unmerited favor starts with, yes, you're forgiven, but he also says that, hey, all things are made new. You are a new creation. Old things have passed away. I've given you a new heart and a new spirit. I've made you a new person. I've changed you from the inside out. I've washed you. I've cleansed you. I come along to live inside of you, to cause you to walk in my ways. And then when you hear that, and you put that on your list, now you're at a place of saying, will I exercise faith for what he said? Is he capable of keeping you in righteousness? Huh? Is he faithful to keep you in righteousness? Will he reward you if you diligently seek him concerning holiness and righteousness? The answer to that is yes, yes, and yes. He will do all of that. And so that's the area of faith and how come it's important. We got Everything we do is by faith. We live by faith. We walk by faith. Anything that's not done in faith, the Scripture says, is sin. We ought to be people of faith, trusting God with all of our hearts, all of our resources, all of everything, that he is the provider, and he will meet our needs. Hallelujah. And so now... That's just a touch of those review things. We're going to open up. i be going to get through all of it, but we want to open up this thing, doctrine of baptism. So some of your translations may say teaching or instructions on washing. They both are correct. The word for doctrine is uh, didachin. We get similar to didache, where we get our teaching, instruction. And the word for baptism is baptismon. Uh, and the root word of that that's used here is baptismos, which comes from the root word in Greek, baptizo. Now, the first word, and within its context, when it talks about doctrines of baptisms, doctrine of baptisms, is letting you know there's many, right? It didn't say the doctrine of baptism. Doctrine of baptisms, in plural. And so originally, and within the context, the immediate context and understanding of the people this was written through, the first thing that would come into their mind would be all the washings associated with the Mosaic Covenant. That would be the first thing that would come in their mind. They understood that the Mosaic Covenant, that washing, was a key part of the covenant. Let me walk you through some. Before we get there, we'll start with the Gospels, actually, before we go look at some things in the Mosaic Covenant. In Mark 7, 4, and Mark 7, 8, Yeshua, and dealing with the Pharisees of his day, and he, they, they upset because the disciples did not wash their hands in a certain prescribed way that, that they, were, they said you had to wash your hands lest you be spiritually defiled, and so it tells us that... That they had lots of washing, of washing of cups and vessels before they would use them. That that was part of the the Pharisees. But where did the Pharisees get this from? Where did the idea, as far as the washing comes from? Well, we'll walk very quickly through Scripture. Exodus 19.10. And Adonai said unto Moses, go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. The word chavas, meaning to take your clothes, and literally you're putting them under the water, and you know, in the old day, we got a bunch of water, didn't have a wash machine, but get that scrub board, and you get them under the thing, and wash them under the water and, and, until they got clean. He tells them to wash their clothes before they can approach the Lord. This is the first kind of idea of what washing is all about. Leviticus 6.27, whoever shall touch the flesh thereof shall be holy. And when there is sprinkled of the blood thereupon any garment, thou shalt wash that where, whereon it was sprinkled in the holy place. So it's talking about the coming in the, the sprinkling and if the blood came upon you and it was considered holy, but they had to go and wash their clothes if it came upon them. Le- Leviticus 11.25, it deals with touching unclean carcasses. Whoever bears out of the carcass of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Leviticus 11.32 deals with vessels, wood, raiment, skin, and, and sacks is that if, if something unclean falls in them, it must be put into water. Now in verse 33, for clay vessels No such thing. Clay vessels were to be broken and destroyed. And probably because clay vessels were known to be porous. So if a dead animal fell into it, it would just suck up all that death into that. And even though you wash the outside, the death would still be in the clay. So the whole thing had to be destroyed. But for skins and those sort of things, you could put them in water and wash them and scrub it and get that death out of there. Leviticus 1140. Uh, If you touch, even touching... uh, clean animal carcasses that die of themselves. Um, when I mean by clean animals, the animals that God says you could eat, those were the clean animals. And he says if they died of themselves that, and you touched them, in fact, he goes further, Leviticus 11.40 says, and he that eateth of the carcass of it shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. He also that beareth the carcass of it shall wash his clothes, be unclean until the evening. Leviticus 13.6 uh, if you had a certain plague, a negah, a sore, a spot, and, after, and the priest, you would bring, come to the priest and show him that you had this, this plague. This is the priest of the Mosaic Covenant. And on the seventh day, he would look at you, and if, 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 if the sore didn't spread and everything, he would declare you clean. And after he declared you clean, after he said that you were clean, he says, You shall go wash your clothes and be clean. Leviticus 13 34. If you had a scab on your head or on your beard, and then the priest says, okay, it's cleaned up, it's not spread, you're clean. The immediate thing you had to do was go wash your clothes. Leviticus 13.54, there was a plague in your garment. You got something, you know, like mole or something that's spreading through the garment, and the priest will look at it. If it stopped and stopped spreading and died, then you could go take your garment and wash it, and you could wear it again. If it continued to spread, it was to be burned up destroyed Leviticus 14 1 through 8 is the law of leprosy it talks about two birds that are taken, the priest would take two birds one was killed in an earthen vessel over running water And the one that is to be cleansed, the person is to be clean, if he's announced that he is clean, that he is to wash his clothes. Verse 8, shave off all his hair, wash himself in water that he may be clean. And after that, he shall come into the camp and shall tarry abroad out of the tent seven days. Verse 9, it says, on the seventh day, he shall shave all his hair and he shall wash his clothes and his flesh in water. Leviticus 14, 47, if you have a plague in your house, he that lieth in the house shall wash his clothes. He that eateth in the house shall wash his clothes. If you have a running issue out of your flesh, we won't get very graphic with that, but if you had it, it says, verse five, whoever touches his beard, this is Leviticus 15, five through six, whoever touches his bed, of the one that had the running issue, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Verse six, and he that sits on anything where he sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Verse seven, he that touches the flesh of him who had this issue shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. If that person spat on you who had the issue, you are to wash your clothes and bathe yourself in water. Verse eight. And verse 9 and 10, if you touch anything that was under him that had the issue running out of him, you were to wash your clothes and bathe yourself with water. Leviticus 15, 17, the seed of copulation, if it's on a garment or the skin, shall be washed with water. Leviticus 15, 21 to 22, a woman with the issue. If you touch her bed or anything she sat on, she was to wash clothes and bathe in water. When at Yom Kippur, the scapegoat was taken, the person who had the responsibility of taking the scapegoat and releasing it in the wilderness after all the sins of Israel were pronounced on that scapegoat, he, when he came back, he was to wash his clothes and bathe in water before he was allowed back into the camp. Leviticus sixteen twenty eight. he that burned the skins of the bullock and the goat. If you remember at Yom Kippur, there was a scapegoat, but there was a bull and a goat that was sacrificed, and the blood was put upon uh, the holy place and upon the altar and everything. The person who was responsible for burning those skins as a burnt offering, that they shall wash their clothes and bathe in flesh, fresh water. Leviticus 17, 15, every soul, whether a native-born or a ger, meaning a, a non-Jewish person who joined himself, a stranger to dwelling in their midst, for everyone that eats that which dies of itself, of which has been torn, shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water. Numbers 8, verse 7 and 21 is the purification of the Levites and thus y'all do unto them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of purifying upon them, and let them shave all their flesh, and let let them wash their clothes, and sons uh, make themselves ready to be clean. This is what they were supposed to do. Numbers 19.7, there was the ashes of the red heifer that was used as part of, of the ceremony for sanctifying the temple. And And it says that the red heifer and the sprinkling of blood, the priest shall wash his clothes and he shall bathe in flesh and water and then he can come back into the camp. The person who offered the red heifer had to do the same thing. The one who burned the flesh had to do the same thing. The one who gathered up the ashes had to do the same thing. Numbers 19, 13, if you touch a dead human body It says that the water of separation had to be sprinkled upon you and that you had to be sprinkled and bathed and cleansed. You can read that in Numbers 19, the whole chapter, read through that. And it talks about that if you don't allow this water of separation that they put upon the person, that you will be cut off from the community. You will not be allowed in. Numbers 31, verses 23 to 24, concerning after the war, even the warriors, after they'd been out fighting in the fields and they'd been killing people and shedding blood, they weren't allowed just to march right back into Jerusalem. Say, hey, we're back from war. Blood all over their shields, blood all over their hands, blood all over the place from all the warfare. No, 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 no. They had to stay outside of the camp, wash their clothes, wash their body, cleanse themselves, and then they were allowed back into the community of Israel. So washing, doctrines of washing from a Jewish mindset, reading that in the book of Hebrews, all of that's running through their mind. They knew that was a part of of the life that they lived. They knew that was associated with temple worship. They knew that was part of the things of their own lives, that if they touched something unclean, they they couldn't just ignore it. They knew there were certain washings they were to perform and walk in on a regular basis to maintain a holiness and purity before God. Now, it didn't take long before Israel began to understand these were physical things, but they understood there was a spiritual dimension to what they were doing physically. So we read things like Psalm 51.2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Or Psalm 51.7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. They began to understand that though they did these physical things, there were spiritual parallels to what they were doing. These physical things were outward signs of what had to happen in their hearts and the spirit. In fact, later on in the book of Jeremiah, he says the external is not enough. You can read like Jeremiah 2.22 and Jeremiah 4.14. 4.14 it says, O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness that thou mayest be saved. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? See, some people want to go on the external rituals, but their hearts are far from him. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is speaking. God is speaking through Isaiah to the children of Israel. He says, I am sick and tired of all your holy days, all your feast days, all your appointed times, and even your sacrifices. And when you pray, your hands are stained with blood. I don't hear you. And this tells us something. It's not that they weren't doing these things. They were, oh, let's go to the temple. It's time to do sacrifices. Oh, it's time to do, oh, it's the morning prayer. Let's do the morning prayer. Oh, it's the afternoon prayer. Let's do the afternoon prayer. Oh, it's the evening prayer. Let's pray. Religiously, they were very committed to outwardly doing all the things that God said to do. But in their day-to-day living in the marketplace with people, they treated people badly. They ripped people off. They lied. They cheated. They said they loved God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They did the ritual outside, but they didn't do have a heart for God. So Jeremiah says, you got to change your heart. There's other places God says to rend your heart, not your garments. There are people who understood the ritual. Oh, I've sinned. Let me tear my clothes. Oh, oh. People, oh, wow, they're really repentant. But they weren't. They're just putting on the show that they knew that would impress everybody. Hey, look at that. Pastor Ralph just ripped his garment. Oh, he's really repentant. Well, real repentance would be a change in the how you live your life, that you're doing things differently. Now you know there's repentance there. Just saying you repent and tearing some garments I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. That's part of the custom. That's part of tradition. We should never be ashamed of tradition that doesn't make the word of God void. It was very common. In the ancient days, If one of the signs of repentance, one of the outward things you would do is put on sackcloth. You know what sackcloth feel like to put on? Go get you some sackcloth and wear it. It's rough. It's itchy. It's ugh. It's like those potato bags you wear. You put them on, and it just itches your skin, and it hurts. And every time you move, it irritates you, and it just makes you feel miserable. It's supposed to help you in your repentance, see? And people understood that. They didn't think it was right to put on their fine clothing when they had sinned. So they take off their fine clothing and they put on what was common that even the, even the poor person wouldn't wear. They put on sackcloth, which was supposed to demonstrate their humility. But some people, hey, miss the humility part and say, so is that all they want? So me to put on some sackcloth? I'll endure some sackcloth and never have a change of heart. So the scripture says, rend your heart, not your garments. God wants to change from within He wants the washing that takes place deep inside of you. Amen? Amen. We'll give you a little bit more, and then we have to close. Turn over to Malachi, the third chapter. Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says Adonai of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like the launderer's soap, the fuller's soap. That's the laundry person that washed the clothes. He says, God is like the soap of that Lord. He's the fire was used to cleanse things that could stand the fire, your metal objects. If you had a metal pan and it got defiled because something unclean fell in it, you could purify it by putting it in the fire because it could, it could stand the test of the fire. Those things that couldn't stand the test of the fire, with the exception of clay vessels, which were destroyed, would be washed with soap and cleansed and made holy. And so, so God is like that. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years, and I will come near... You for judgment, I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, against those who turn away an alien, a stranger, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed o sons of Jacob yet from the days of your fathers you have done, gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them return teshuvah, to me and i will return to you says the lord of hosts but you said in what way shall we return and he goes on about the offerings and the sacrifices be given cuz people they were ripping off giving the worst of the sacrifices. Not that they stopped sacrificing. It's just they, they, when they were supposed to not give unblemished animals. They were giving the unblemished animals to, to sacrifice and keeping the good ones for themselves. And he goes on and he warns about all the, the bringing all the tithe, all the offerings that God required into the storehouse, which was the temple, to be fulfilled. But the point I want you to get is to see God's heart to look at your heart. He doesn't look on the outside. He says he's like soap and fire. But his purpose is not to destroy you. His purpose is to make you holy. He's not coming with fire to wipe you out. He's coming to make you pure and holy. When he says be holy as I'm holy, he means it. But thank God that he is so gracious that the things he calls us to, that he provides a way for us to walk in the thing that he wants us to do. That's his grace. His grace is not closing his eyes and pretending if you're doing sin, like, oh, I don't see that. I don't see that. When I was a young believer, there was this, a ministry called last days ministry some of people may be feel remember this this was out of um, the late great late keith green had started a ministry called last days ministry and he used to send out these little booklets and they had different stories and one of them had to do with holiness and righteousness and the front cover of it had this picture of what people think jesus looked like sort of smiling and you know, one of these poses or something, this Jesus being all smiling with his robe, and, and, and it has a, 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 a light coming down from heaven that's representing the Father looking down, and, and you have this light coming down and hitting the Jesus figure, and he's got his hands out all holding everything, and then behind this cutout, you know, like those cutouts they have of the president and everything, you can take a picture with them. he looks like you're really with the president, and, But behind it, they were back there doing all kind of things, gambling and doing all kind of uh, drugs and sexual immorality, all just back there doing evil things. And and the caption says, because this was a popular thing, when God looks from heaven, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. So you're accepted in him. And they were taking that concept to task. Look, Jesus, if you belong to him, is not on the outside of you okay, he lives in you so that when the Father looks at you, he sees you and all of what you are, and if you're yielding to Yeshua who lives in you, then he will see the righteousness that come forth, but make no, no mistake about it. The Scripture says God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he shall reap. If you sow to the flesh, that's what you're going to bring forth. But thank God we sow to the Spirit. And if we sow to the Spirit, then we will see the fruit of the Spirit come forth in our life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and all those things. And that's what we're going to end with. Next time that we're together, Lord willing, we will move on to talk about Baptism as we might understand it today about, you know, what about John's baptism? What about the baptism of Moses? What about Holy Spirit baptism? What about believer's baptism? Is it immersion? Is it pouring? Is it sprinkling? What, what name should be said when you're baptized? Does it make a difference if it, uh, that it it is named? What kind of water should be used? We, we're going we're to touch all those things because those are things that, that cause great division in the body. And so we want to understand where some of these things came from and what the scripture says concerning baptism and what it really is all about and why it's a part of the new covenant believer's life. And that's where we want to pick up. So let's all stand up. Hallelujah.